Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 25, verse 13. Like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. A faithful messenger was of great value in Solomon's time. Communication and business between kingdoms or between households required servants to travel, sometimes great distances, to carry messages or goods from their masters. But in this method of communication was the potential for the servant to go astray. He could be inaccurate in his delivery of the message and distort his master's intent. Or he could rob his master and run off with the valuable items that were put in his charge. The consequences of such unfaithfulness would be great loss and harm to his master and to his master's household. A king like Solomon, though he was wise, could not build a kingdom or rule his people on his own. He needed the help of others. The success of his reign was dependent upon faithful messengers, and as a result, those who were faithful were a great delight to him. Solomon likens this delight to the refreshment of cold after the backbreaking labor of harvest in the heat of Palestine. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger. But the lesson of this proverb isn't just about the necessity of a faithful messenger. It is about the blessing of faithful people in all of our lives. Like the king who is dependent on messengers for his work, we are all dependent on others in the work of life. God has placed us in community with one another because we need each other. We cannot make it through marriage, through raising children, through career, through unemployment, through sickness, through the death of loved ones, through all aspects of life on our own. It is the presence of dependable and faithful people in our lives that refresh us in the backbreaking labor of life. Faithfulness is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. As we examine ourselves through this morning's proverb, we should each ask ourselves, am I a faithful person? How would our spouse or our children answer that question? Children, how would your parents answer that question? The answer depends on how we understand faithfulness to be. What does it look like on a daily basis? Faithfulness is being diligent in your duties and doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Faithfulness is consistently loving and serving those who depend on you even if they have nothing to give you in return, even when they behave in a not so lovely way. Faithfulness as a husband or wife is going beyond your typical duties of work or managing your home or parenting your kids and giving yourself to your spouse, your time, your energy, and your affection. Faithfulness as a child is obeying and on your parents even when they're not watching you, even when you disagree with their decisions, even when they sin. Faithfulness as a Christian is obeying and following Jesus Christ even when our way is not so clear or when the trials of life come. Faithfulness is being consistently dependable, consistently diligent, consistently loving, consistently obedient. So I ask the question again, are you, am I, a faithful person? It is hard to answer with an affirmative yes, and it should be. We are sinful people and faithfulness does not come naturally. Faithfulness is hard, but when we get it right, we refresh the souls of the people God has placed in our lives. 
when we get it wrong, we can cause great harm. But thanks be to God that we have one on our side who is perfectly faithful, who died for us even when we were wicked enemies, and keeps loving us and caring for us even when we sin. God is always faithful. He is faithful in forgiving our sins and faithful in fixing the harm that our unfaithfulness has caused. So let us go before him now and confess our sins. If you are willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins to God. we started uh, a look at the book of Leviticus proper. Uh, we've, we've been going through our worship series for a couple months now, and, uh, and we reference Leviticus a lot through that, because Leviticus has a lot for us to teach us about worship. But then last week we started looking at the book of Leviticus proper, since we've, we've completed the worship series, and we saw how holy God is. And this was exemplified by Nadab and Abihu's offering of strange fire and the ensuing consumption of them by God's fire. He's, he's that holy. We cannot approach him on our own, through our own means. We need to approach him in the way that he commands. And this theme of holiness is central to the entire book of Leviticus. And it finds its fullest expression in the next section of the book, which we're going to cover next week. And that's chapter 17 through 22. And it talks about holy living. But our text this week covers a related topic to this holiness of God. And that topic is cleanliness. So you've all heard the cliche saying that cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, in a sort of way, it comes from this. God comes and gives us his law, he gives us uh, the tabernacle, he gives us the sacrificial system, and he sanctifies it all, and he initiates his own worship. And the next thing that he does is he gives us five chapters of laws about how to be clean. What's clean? What's unclean? How do you define those things? Cleanliness comes after godliness. In fact, God tells us the reason we must be clean is, 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 I am the Lord your God, you shall be holy because I am holy. That's why we must be holy. And the, cleanliness, the cleanliness laws are a holiness code. That's what they are. It's a code of holiness. So once... God gave the laws in chapters 1 through 7, and he initiates the service of the priests in the first worship service. He gives us this, this list of laws. And these laws are given to show us what the holiness of God does to his chosen people. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be sanctified. In the Old Testament, this, this setting apart had outward physical manifestations. You could tell the difference between God's chosen people and not God's chosen people by the way they ate, by the way they washed, by the way they dressed, and by the way they acted. They were set apart. It's, it's, it, they were, it, by the way, where they lived, they were set apart in every way. 
for God's worship, for God's service. They were his chosen people. So let's let's look let's dive into Leviticus now. We're going to look at I'm going to I'm going to cover six chapters today of Leviticus. That's a big chunk of scripture, and so we're not going to read it all. I promise. Um, but let's let's look at these chapters. Let's try and wrap our heads around what's going on here, because all too often when we come to the scriptures and we come to passages like the book of Leviticus, we just give up. We just give up. We say. I don't, I don't get this. <laughs> this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And yet we know that the apostles and Jesus were immersed in this scripture. I, they, 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 they breathed it in and breathed it out. It was, it, it was the fabric of their lives. And, and everything about this was instructive for the Christian life. In fact, I think Paul says somewhere in Hebrews, uh, as he's talking about the temple and the, and the sacrificial system and, and how everything there was symbolic, and he says, but we don't have time to get into that. That's what he says, because <laughs> there's so much there. We just don't have time for that. Let's, let's move on. And so because there's so much there, the nature of this, this message is going to be uh, an overview. But that's good, because that will help us be able to kind of put things in context. So then when you go back and read through this, hopefully it will give you a framework in which to, to put this. And so we, we start with, with Leviticus chapter 11. And this is uh, where, where God gives us the instructions about food, about what is a clean and what is, is an unclean animal. Uh, and so in verses 1 through 8, he talks about animals and what animals could be eaten for food. And there's, there are two stipulations for clean animals. They must have cloven hooves, that means feet divided in two, and they must be uh, animals that chew the cud. And so that, that's, that's the two stipulations for animals. He gives us eight verses about that. Um, so first he gives us the principle, and then he starts listing the things that are not acceptable because they're, they have one or they have the other, but they don't have both. But that's what we get in verses 1 through 8. Then he tells us that clean fish or clean, clean food that you can eat from the water has two things that identify them. They have fins and they have scales. And again, he says, whatever does not have fins, you may not eat. Or whatever does not have scales, you may not eat. And so we get four verses on that, verses 9 through 12. Then we get a list of the birds that they may not eat. And with the birds, we don't get the two things that, that, that differentiate the birds that we may eat from what we may not eat. But in generally, generally what you can see is that birds who eat unclean stuff are unclean for us to eat. So birds that eat carry-on uh, or garbage, uh, we don't eat those birds. And then fourth, and interestingly for our culture, was insects that you were allowed to eat, which we don't do much of. But there were two things that distinguished insects that they could eat, and that was that they were either flying, they had to be flying insects, and they had to have joints above their feet. So if they did not fly, if they just were on the ground all the time, you couldn't eat them. 
And if they didn't leap because they were they had legs, like grasshoppers and and crickets, you could eat those. But but the others you could not eat if they if they didn't have uh, joints above their uh, their feet. Um, so after we get this distinction of what's clean and what's unclean, we get a ritual for cleansing. Because as soon as you have unclean, now you have the problem of what happens when you're, when you're made unclean. What's that mean? And so we're told that you, you become unclean if you touch the carcass of a dead animal that's unclean. And if you, if you become unclean in that fashion, you are unclean until evening. And if you actually pick up and carry the dead animal, then you have to take a bath and wash your clothes, and you're unclean until evening. Similarly with, with creeping things, and there it lists mice and moles and lizards and, and those kind of things that might be found in domiciles in the Middle East or here. Um, they are unclean, and so what happens with unclean things that they, when they touch things, they, the things they touch become unclean. So pots become unclean. They need to be washed, or if they're made out of earthenware, they need to be destroyed. Um, food, if there's food in, in, a, in a pot, that food becomes unclean. If Yet, on the other hand, cisterns or, or springs that have water, if, if an unclean animal touches it, it does not pollute the, the water, though whatever touches the dead thing becomes unclean. And, um, and if these things, if, if a person touches these things and becomes unclean, they must, again, wash in water and they're unclean until evening. And interestingly, also they talk about seed. If, if the, an unclean animal touches dry seed, the seed's fine. If the seed gets wet, then it's not fine. Um, and then it jumps back to talking about the carcasses of clean animals. So there, you can become unclean by eating, by eating unclean animals or by touching dead unclean animals. You can also become unclean by touching animals that die naturally that are clean animals. They, those are also unclean for, for the Israelites. And, and then how you are cleansed from that is the same way as if you were touching an unclean animal's carcass. Now the justification for all these stipulations about clean and unclean is given for us in Leviticus chapter 11 verses 43 through 45. God says, you shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. So the problem with becoming unclean is that it makes you defiled, and you may not become defiled because of this reason. For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So he repeats it twice there. And this is the whole point of the entire cleanliness code. God said, I took you out from the nations. I took you out from Egypt. And this is what separates you from the world, is these food 
these food uh, stipulations. That, and, and, and that's exactly what we see being a challenge when Jesus reunites the Gentiles and the Jews in the church, is, is food issues. That's why Paul talks about these things in, in Corinthians and in Romans. It's because the Jews were really militant about not eating unclean food. Uh, and it's what separated them from the Gentiles. Now another term, and I've already given this, for the, all these ceremonial laws is holiness code. Because our God is holy, we must be so. And his holiness sanctifies us so that we must not become defiled. And these are laws, and God describes them as such. So at the end of each of these sections, or, or mostly it's chapters, and for the, the, um, for the leprosy it's two chapters, but at the end of each of these sections, we get a, a verse that tells us this is the law of da da da. Um, so each section of, after, each of, after each of these cleanliness codes, it's closed with this is the law. And for, for the food, it says, this is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. And the end result of all of this is to separate the Jews from the Gentiles. And uh, the remaining cleanliness laws that we are going to be encountering here in Leviticus have to do with the uncleanness that comes from our bodies. It, it's, it's, so now that we've been set apart from the world, now we have to deal with our own uncleanness. And so the food represents our separation from the world or from the, from the nations. Now we're going to deal with what about what's left in us. And it starts with childbirth. So Leviticus 12, it, it start, and this makes sense because it's the entrance into the covenant people. So verses 1 through 5 of Leviticus 12 describe the length of the uncleanness and the impurity. So uh, for if, uh, if a woman has a male child, she's unclean for seven days. And then she's impure for 33 days after that. And if she has a female child, then she's unclean for 14 days. And she's impure for 66 days after that. And there's a couple important things here. And it's interesting, isn't it, uh, how God makes these distinctions. Um, the first one is that we have she's unclean and then she's impure. And there's a, a, there's impurity is, is different from uncleanness. Uncleanness means that anything that they touched or sat on or their bed would become unclean. So they would be they would be in, in, in they would be isolated or um, they would be set aside uh, from the body of the community because they were unclean and they, they couldn't be allowed. So basically they were put in quarantine for seven days or for 14 days, depending on the length of their uncleanness. And then this impurity, the, 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 the length of time in which the text says it's she's continuing in the blood of her purification, that does not mean unclean. What it means is she's not allowed to touch anything that was sanctified or holy, and she wasn't allowed to go into the sanctuary. So the, so the mother of the child for, for 33 days after a boy, and, after her impurity with the boy, and 66 days after the girl, she, she could not go to the temple to worship, and she could not uh, eat meat that was sacrificed on, at, the, at the temple. Um, 
And then verses 6 through 8 describe the ritual for atonement. So she would have to make atonement for for the, uh, the the child, which would, after her days of impurity, she would go to the temple, and, and the, the, the atonement was the same for the boy and the girl. She'd offer a lamb at, for an ascension offering and a bird for a sin offering. Now, the, we don't know why there's a difference between the boy and the girl. We know that part of it may have been that the, the fact that the boy would have to be circumcised on the eighth day, and and this, this would allow the woman to participate or to be present for the circumcision for her own son. Um, and we also know that the, the length of time, the 7 plus 33 days or the 14 plus 66 days, is 40 days or 80 days. And those are, those are traditional or those are biblical numbers for purity or for God's cleansing. So we, like the flood is, lasts for 40 days, etc. But we don't know exactly the details of, of why one was longer than the other. In verse 7, we get the this is the law passage. This is the law for her who has been born a male or a female. And then verse 8 gives us a, just a, it's kind of an addendum. It allows that for somebody who's poor, that they could offer a different substitute. Uh, they could give a bird instead of a lamb because it would be a cheaper sacrifice that they could afford. The laws for leprosy go all through chapters 13 and 14. And they're quite extensive. Uh, the primary concern with leprosy was spreading uncleanness. That, that's what leprosy... It, leprosy was a contagious disease, and it, and it made the leper an outcast. Uh, they had to live outside the camp, and they were separated from the community as a whole, and especially from the tabernacle. They were, they were outcasts. They were put outside the camp. And leprosy was seen as a judgment from God, and perhaps a better translation even than leprosy would be a plague of corruption, because that's what it was. So in our modern translations, we read about leprosy, and we think about a very specific skin disease, but uh, it would have been any sort of infectious skin disease. And but we also it talks, also talks about leprosy of garments and leprosy of houses, which that doesn't it doesn't cross over too well. And it was talking about mold and mildew there. And so a plague of corruption is a better term, terminology for this. Um, and it would bring to mind the plagues that God cursed the Egyptians with, the, 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 the cursed people with. Um, so speaking of the law against these plagues of corruption, we see that it extended from the individual to his coverings, his garments, then to his envir environment, his house, is his house, and it points to the fact that God wants His people to be entirely holy. Leviticus 13 verses 1 through 46 covers leprosy on the skin. Uh, the first 44 verses involve distinguishing what leprosy is. Uh, from other non-leprous infections, uh, healing wounds or uh, boils or scabs or, or male pattern balding, those, those are not leprosy. And so the, the, Moses and Aaron were very explicitly commanded about how to identify what leprosy was. But the results of this leprosy are given for us in verses 45 and 46. Now the leper on whom the sore is, once it's been determined, 
His clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So to be a leper was to be in a very pitiable state. Then the text goes to cover leather, wool, and linen garments. And they're covered in verses 47 to 59 of chapter 13. Any any clothes that were deemed to be unclean were burned. They could cut out a section, they could wash it, they, there were different things they could do to, to determine if it really was leprous or containing a plague of corruption. But once it was determined, it was destroyed and burned so that it, so that it would be purified. In chapter 14, in the first uh, half of it, or a little more than half of it, we see that there that lepers could be healed. They could they, their their sores could be could heal up, and if if that happened, they could be cleansed. And there was and so that passage gives the ritual for the cleansing of lepers, and it was very complicated. It would included offering two birds, and so they, they would take two birds and then they would sacrifice one over an earthenware bowl over running water. And then they would take the blood from that one and and a uh, piece of cedar wood and some hyssop, and they would dip dip that in the blood, and they would sprinkle it on the other bird, and they would sprinkle it on it in in the temple before the altar, and then they would release the the other bird into the field. So we have a sacrificial substitute, and then we also have the 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 uncleanness being uh, released into the wild. Um, then we also see that the leper would have his hair shaved over his entire body, including his eyebrows, everything, shaved. And then he would take a bath and wash and clean. And then he could come back into the camp, but he had to sleep outside of his tent for seven days, after which he would shave and be washed again. And, and once it was, he, he remains clean, then he would give a sin offering and an ascension offering, and then they would put blood and oil, first the blood, they would put it on his earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe, and then they would put oil on his right earlobe, right thumb, and his right big toe. And by this they would, they would be symbolizing his atonement and his, his, in, his, his sanctification so that he could be part of the holy people once again. But in all of this, we see that it's, it's full of grace because there was atonement that was available for him. The unclean man was sanctified and rejoined with his people. The, re, the remainder of uh, chapter 14 deals with defiled houses. Uh, and and uh, they, they could clean it once and see if that would take care of it. They could replaster, they could break down a chunk of the wall and rebuild it. But they had to, to leave the house and come back in, in a week. And if it was if it, if it was clean, okay, you could move back in. Everything's fine. If it was not clean, it would be demolished. And if the house was cleaned, then uh, then they would redeem it similarly to the leper with two birds, where they would kill one and sprinkle the blood and release the other one. The conclusion of all this uh, leprosy uh, law is given in Leviticus 14 verses 54 through 57. 
This is the law for any leprous sore and scale, for the leprosy of a garment and of a house, for a swelling and a scab and a bright spot, to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. Leviticus chapter 15 covers bodily discharges. And specifically what is covered here were the discharges from the genitalia. And so the first, the first part of it covered abnormal discharges from men. And then the second, the second portion of it covered, covered normal discharges, which would be uh, ejaculation or semen. And then the next uh, section covered normal discharges from women, their periods. And then the last section covered abnormal discharges from women, which would have been gynecological problems. So normal discharges made the Israelites unclean, but they did not require a sacrifice to atone for them. It just it would require them to take a bath, to wash, and then they would be unclean until evening for the men and for the women for a, for a sexual intercourse. And if the women were having their period, they would be unclean for seven days. The abnormal discharges required washing. And then they required seven days of waiting period. And then after that, if they were determined to be clean, they would, they would make a sacrifice of the two birds, where they would sacrifice the one and they sprinkle the blood and let the other one go. So in the conclusion of this section, we see the underlying principle of all of the holiness code. Leviticus 15, verses 31 to 33. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. This is the underlying principle. God's people must be holy because he is holy. And if they are not holy, they will die when they come into his presence. This is the law for the one who has a discharge, and for him who emits semen and is unclean thereby, and for her who is indisposed because of her customary impurity, and for one who has a discharge, either man or woman, and for him who lies with her who is unclean. So we see that the holiness code was there to define the limitations on who could approach the tabernacle, and it was there for their own protection. It was God's grace to his people lest they be consumed like Nadab and Abihu were. And we also see how, clean, how cleanliness defines the people of God from their separation from the Gentiles in the food laws and in their coming into the community of the believers in birth and to their life within the community, how they must have clean bodies, to their dress, they must have clean garments, to their dwellings, they must have clean houses, and to their future. And that's, that's in the rituals regarding discharges. It, it has to do with procreation. God wants his people to be a clean people, a holy people set apart for him. And after all of these cleanliness laws, we arrive at Leviticus chapter 16, which describes the Day of Atonement. Once the people of God have been adequately defined, God now provides a way for them to be atoned for because they need still to be atoned for. Even if they're abiding by all these cleanliness laws, they still need their sin to be expiated. This entire section of the book of Leviticus is about cleanliness, 
And the Day of Atonement was, is, is an elaborate sin offering. That's what the Day of Atonement was. It was a day of fasting and a Sabbath of affliction. And it functioned sort of like an annual spring cleaning of the house of God. That's what the Day of Atonement was. It was an annual spring cleaning of the house of God. Uh, it was a, a spring cleaning of the people of God. It was a spring cleaning of the priesthood of God. And it was a spring cleaning of the tabernacle. It was the one day in the year in, that the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and he would be in the presence of God in the, who was at the mercy seat in the glory cloud. The one day of the year in which the high priest could come into God's presence and what does he do there? He makes atonement. That's what he does there. The one day that he can, he can go there. He, and this, this bears a little more fleshing out. The word atonement was, is an English word that was created for the Hebrew word kafar. They didn't have an English word that was equivalent to this. The word means at one meant. It's, it's, it's a, a reconciliation between God and man. And central to the idea of atonement is covering. It's, so you, the, the, the priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of the sin offering on the mercy seat, and he would he would cover the the people of God with the blood of the sin offering. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in, in order to provide a covering for his people. And God graciously provides this for them in this sacrificial system. And this includes paying for and removing their sins. And so we, there's an interesting thing that happens in the Day of Atonement in that the, the sacrifice for the people's sin was two goats, two male goats. And they would take the two goats into the temple and they would, they would cast lots and they would select one of them to be the sin offering, the sacrifice. They would, they would, kill, its, they would, they would kill it at the door of the, the tabernacle and they would take its blood and they would sprinkle it on the, uh, on the altar and they would, they would put it on the altar, they would, they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and they would sprinkle it on the other goat. And then the, uh, um, sorry, and then they would take the other goat, and then Aaron would come and he would lay his hands on this other goat and he would, he would pray. And I'm going to read that, that those two verses, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 16. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So we have the scapegoat that's part of this day of atonement. Now the allusions to what Christ has done for us on the cross are all throughout this. The, the, the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. The, the, that he bears our sins away from us. And, and God spreads them as far as the east is from the west. And, and that's what, that's what the, the Day of Atonement was pointing to Jesus Christ. And this is clear when we come to look at cleanliness in the New Testament. The first 
place we go to look for this is in Hebrews. And in Hebrews, Jesus is the new high priest who fulfilled the Day of Atonement. Christ is mediating a better covenant, and that the fact that that is what he's doing is kind of the main point of the whole book of Hebrews. So there's a ton of places where you can go in this book to, to point to that. But let's look, let's look at Hebrews 9, verses 14 and 15. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Jesus, his blood was greater than the bulls and the goats of the Old Testament. His blood actually atones for our sins. He accomplished the atonement, so we no longer have an annual day of atonement. We no longer need to sacrifice bulls and goats. Furthermore, Jesus eliminates the distinction between clean and unclean. At, at least as far as the separation of Jews and Gentiles, and the setting apart of any created thing as holy or unholy. So first, here we turn to Acts 10 for this. And this is the famous passage in which Peter receives a vision and a command to rise, kill, and eat unclean animals. There's a sheet that's filled with unclean animals. And, he, and, and God tells him in a vision, rise, kill, and eat, Peter. And Peter says, but Peter said, Acts 10 verse 14, but Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. And immediately after this, in the narrative of Acts, Peter's called to go to Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. And then Peter says, What can prevent us from giving them baptism also? He recognizes that, that you cannot call any man unholy, unclean, if God's pouring his spirit out on them. They, God has removed that distinction of Jew and Gentile. And now it's Christian or non-Christian. It's believer or unbeliever. Paul basically makes the point very directly in Romans 14, verse 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. There's nothing unclean of itself. And moving down to verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Notice what the distinction for holiness is, for cleanness is. It's being acceptable to God and being approved by men. And he calls it righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what cleanness is. And for this very reason, marrying unbelievers is forbidden in, in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? 
And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Notice, cleanliness language is used right here at the close of this passage, and he's talking about not marrying unbelievers. But didn't we just say that he had gotten rid of the distinction of clean and unclean? Well, he got rid of the ceremonial distinction of clean and unclean, but not the real distinction of clean and unclean. It's, it's about who is acceptable to God. That is what defines what clean and unclean is. And it's about the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But if a believer is marrying an unbeliever, they're bringing about discord. And that's a sin. And that's why you're not to do it. And while entering into marriage with unbelievers defiles the temple, because it creates obstacles to righteousness, peace, and joy, being married to an unbeliever does not work the same way. So if you're married to an unbeliever and you become a believer... It's not then that you must divorce them. Because we read in 1 Corinthians 7 that holiness is contagious. An unbelieving spouse sanctifies, I mean a believing spouse sanctifies an unbelieving spouse and their children. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Again, peace. That's what cleanliness is. It's peace. It's righteousness. It's joy in the Holy Spirit. Another aspect of New Testament cleanliness is that defilement comes out of the mouth. Because what comes out of the mouth is what comes out of the heart. And the heart is full of wickedness. And we get this from the teaching about uh, our, it's not the, the cup that's, that, that makes you clean or not washing your hands that makes you unclean, but, but what comes out of the mouth. Because Jesus says, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed, these, these are the things that defile you. Unclean or evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Those are what defiles a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not. Similarly, James tells us that the tongue defiles the whole body. It sets the world on fire. In Christ, we receive a clean world. He's made everything holy for us. Everything is sanctified for believers. And nothing is pure for unbelievers. Outside of Christ, all men are doomed to eternal damnation. They do not have the acceptance of God. 
They are not clothed with His righteousness, with His clean white robes. They're not covered with His forgiveness. Paul tells Timothy, or Titus, at the beginning of Titus in chapter 1, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So our God is a holy God, a clean God, a pure God. And He provides for us a glorious picture for what He has for us. At the end of Revelation, He talks about the glories of the New Jerusalem. And the Bible closes with this. It's the second to last chapter. And he's talking about the New Jerusalem. And He says, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illumined it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of, of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this echoes what Paul told us about the righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit in relation to cleanliness. This is where all of us want to be. This is where all of us need to go. And none of us will go there without the cleanliness and the atonement Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. God's standards of cleanliness, purity, and perfection are absolute and unattainable for us. The whole point of the sacrificial system was to point us to our need for a scapegoat and a substitutionary atonement. And this is because of the death of our depravity and uncleanness. But God sent the answer. God sent the antidote. He sent holiness in Jesus. When Jesus comes, He makes all the prohibited foods holy and clean. He sanctifies the Gentiles. When Jesus comes, He touches the lepers and He makes them clean. He heals them and brings them into the body of His people. When Jesus comes, He heals the flow of blood. He cleanses the temple and He sanctifies it. And that temple is you and me. And He raises the dead and thus we celebrate his victory over ultimate defilement because he took death to the cleaners and he took away our sins all in one fell swoop to god be the glory forever and ever amen christ's body broken for us let us pray
Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the Worship Service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.